drugs, sensory deprivation, literal physical torture. Uh, the court case that was recently won two years ago did convict these doctors of torturing their patients. So this was not just torture with drugs, horrible drugs, scopolamine, LSD. Um, LSD can be fun if it's recreational, but in that environment, it's not. It was pure torture. Welcome to Heroes Behind Headlines. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. Our guest today is author Steve Smith, who in 1968, at the age of 18, while hitchhiking through Canada, made a reckless decision to steal a car and another bad decision to ingest the two tabs of acid he was carrying. Mistaking the resulting drug trip for a mental breakdown, authorities threw him in Ontario's Oak Ridge Mental Hospital. There, he was subjected to eight months of experiments involving LSD, scopolamine, methamphetamine, and other drugs and types of abuse and torture designed to break him down mentally. This program was directed by Dr. Elliot Barker and linked to the CIA's MKUltra mind control program. And that was just the beginning of a terrifying journey that landed Steve in the hands of a group of German ex-Nazis operating throughout Western Canada, known as the Brotherhood. In his important book, The Psychopath Machine, A Story of Resistance and Survival, Steve provides documentation to substantiate his claims and exposes a systematic program of abuse that has since been called, quote, flagrant and outrageous by a judge of the Ontario Superior Court. We welcome the courageous Steve Smith as today's hero behind the headlines. Heroes Behind Headlines with Ralph Pizzullo. So let's let's just dive in. Can you tell us a little bit about where you were born, when you were born, just sort of your early life? I know you had one brother. Yeah. Um, so I was born in 1949. That makes me 74 years old. Um, born in a small town. Nothing unusual about my early life at all, just family life. I was a hippie, mm-hmm. grew up in the in the 60s and did most of the things that hippies did, mm-hmm. including hitchhiking across the country, <laughs> or at least trying to. So I got about halfway before running into some youthful problems, and it got me tangled up into an incredible mess. Yeah. So um, these events are almost 60 years old, 50 plus years old. But they're still contemporary today. There's still cover-ups going on over what happened in Oak Ridge. Mm-hmm. So I should cut right to Oak Ridge. It was yeah, please. Um, it was a hospital for the criminally insane, um, a term that doesn't even exist today. Yeah. But um, this was, I think, the only place in Canada of its kind. It was essentially, um, it, it wasn't a, a hospital environment. It was a prison environment, steel bars. And uh, I don't believe anyone had ever escaped from it. So this is where they sent people who um, who committed mass murders, child molesters, rapists, serial rapists, the worst of the worst. Um, it seems in retrospect, most of them weren't kind of mentally ill in a traditional sense. They weren't 
hallucinating. They weren't schizophrenic mm-hmm. or um, obviously crazy people. They were psychopaths. Yeah. They were just bad people. Yeah. So this is where they would be sent. And I found myself literally recruited into this, traded into it. Under what circumstances, Steve? What were you, like 18 years old? Yeah, I was, I was 18. Uh, I was hitchhiking. It was cold and got stranded in a, a kind of middle of nowhere and stole a car from a used car lot mm-hmm. and drove for about 50 miles to the next town. And when I was abandoning the car, the police happened to pull in right behind me. Mm-hmm. Simple twist of fate. Yeah. My whole life would have been different, but for that, for that awful timing. So I had LSD in my pocket that I intended to take when I got to the West Coast. But now I'm sitting in the back of the police car and it was pretty obvious I wasn't getting to the West Coast. Yeah. So being a foolish young kid that I was, I could have just dropped it on the floor and no one would have ever found it. It was absolutely tiny. Yeah. But I swallowed it. Yeah. And that was a mistake. So for the next 12 hours or so, um, clearly the police thought I was crazy. And, and uh, the judge who saw the, who interviewed me in the morning thought I was crazy. So they sent me off to a local um, psychiatric hospital for observation. Mm-hmm. Of course, the LSD wore off in a few hours. And, um, they kind of realized I wasn't crazy. I wasn't like psychotic, hallucinating, wacko. You hadn't done anything violent. No, I hadn't done anything really serious. I stole a car. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't exactly the crime of the century. Right. But a few days later, before I was due to return to court, um, mysteriously, I, I got traded for another prisoner. I actually have the letter that I got through um, access to information. I have the letter asking for me in trade for another patient that they had literally traded like baseball card my god then i found myself shipped off to this most horrendous institution you could it's a nightmare yeah truly it was a nightmare yeah at 18 it was just something shocking yeah but it only got worse from there yeah medieval building yeah um since been torn down by the way Mm -hmm. The, the building was so ugly that unlike all the other abandoned mental hospitals all over the world, they're still there. They're just empty. They're like tourist, tourist spots or something. But this building was so horrendous that they actually demolished it to make way for a for an empty field. Yeah. It, in fact, if you look at the building, it's on the cover of my book. Yeah. It has the same kind of uh, architecture as Auschwitz. Yeah, it does. It looks like a concentration camp. You can camp. picture railway, yeah. railway tracks going to the front door. Yeah, yeah. So... And you had no choice. Oh, yeah. No choice at all. They just sent you off to this place. No, I was committed. Yeah. I was committed, mentally ill, shipped off. Uh-huh. Um, absolutely stunned. I, I can't possibly explain the fear in my heart yeah. at the time. It was so long ago. Yeah. But even so now, it's still kind of, when I cast my memory back to that, it was just the most horrendous thing you could imagine. But then it got worse. It got much worse. As it... As it stands, the, the the inmates were actually running the hospital. Yeah. Inmates were deciding, and, and these inmates were bad people. They were some of Canada's worst criminals, serial killers, child rapists. They were making the decisions about what kind of treatment other patients would receive. Incredible. From the moment I entered this thing, I didn't know who was a doctor, who was an attendant, 
who worked for the hospital and who was a serial rapist killer. I honestly didn't know. Yeah. Some people um, had their own clothes and they wore wristwatches and they acted like doctors. Yeah. But they were, in fact, crazy. I mean, really yeah. bad, bad people. No, you describe some of these people and they're, yeah. they're just, it's horrendous. Yeah. They would make the decisions of what kind of drugs other patients would get. I don't even want to call them patients. We weren't patients. We were prisoners. Yeah, trapped in a, in a program. In a nightmare. Yeah. Now, it, it took years of research for me. I, I knew that when this was happening, I knew this was all wrong. Yeah. I don't belong here. I, I don't belong with these people. I didn't kill anyone. Yeah. Uh, I, I never hurt a person in my life. Yeah. So I, I knew this was clearly wrong. They mixed me up with someone else. Yeah. But it took me years of research to uncover what they were doing and why I was there. Yeah. I was... I was kind of, um, if you're going to study a certain group of people, you need, uh, you need others that are kind of control subjects. Mm -hmm. So in, if you're going to study psychopaths, you need a group of psychopaths and some that are not psychopaths yeah. so that you can see the difference between the experiments. Yeah. So it became clear after years of research and gathering documents that they knew full well, I'm not crazy. I'm not a psychopath. Yeah. But. I had to go through this with the rest of them. Yeah. So I was, I was only there for eight months. Now I say only because so many people were there for years. Yeah. The program itself went on for a decade. So I suppose, you know, I was kind of, I was struck a light blow and maybe that's why I survived and got past all of this. Yeah. But it was enough for me to be so insulted and assaulted yeah. by this that I, I'm not letting go of this. Yeah, yeah. Um, you should not have picked on me. Yeah. You shouldn't have done this. Yeah. And I'm going to dedicate my life to proving that. While you were in Oak Ridge, you were given all kinds of dr different kinds of drug treatments. Drugs, sensory deprivation, literal physical torture. Mm -hmm. uh, cor the court case that was recently won two years ago did convict these doctors of torturing their patients. Jeez. So. This was not just torture with drugs, horrible drugs, scopolamine, yeah. LSD. Um, LSD can be fun if it's recreational, but in that environment, it's not. Yeah. It was pure torture. Right. Scopolamine is not a recreational drug. No, that, that sounds just a, a horrific what you described that. Yeah, this is the drug they use in, in South America to, uh, they blow it in your face. They call it a zombie drug. Mm -hmm. They can literally walk up to you and blow it in your face and you will become uh, delirious. They can take you to a bank machine, empty out your bank. Um, it, it's a date rape drug, essentially. So you spend hours and hours yeah. in a complete delirious state. Yeah. Very unpleasant. Yeah. So these drugs would be, would be prescribed by other patients and you would have no choice. You'd be held down. Methamphetamine as well. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if you refused to talk, if you didn't want to participate, well, a little intravenous, not just intramuscular, intravenous injection of methamphetamine, that'll get you talking. Yeah. So God. this was all run by the patients. Plus, um, ah, one of the most awful things, they had restraints made from seatbelt material mm -hmm. that had, uh, they had grommets, brass grommets and padlocks so they could tie you up in an assortment of ways. Uh, I think one of them was called a turkey, 
turkey something mm-hmm. uh, literally you know things that that you would expect in a concentration camp mm-hmm. tied up for hours sometimes days God. absolute physical abuse sensory deprivation um sleep deprivation they would either keep you awake for days with drugs and actual physical torture if you fall asleep they just squeeze a, a pressure point and wake you up again after a few days of that it's just horrendous they didn't have to beat people they didn't have to whack you with a rubber hose the physical torture was relentless and it was all it was all designed to just break people's character yeah. break you down and make you cooperate yeah i started out rebellious i i would rebel to all of this because i knew it was wrong yeah but you quickly learn you don't rebel you have no you have no options you have to go along with the program yeah now the government the canadian government knew about this place and it was run by a doctor who was sort of a a student of dr ewan cameron from mcgill university that's right can you talk about that for a minute about how this was this was not just an isolated place or an isolated treatment mcgill university experiments are really well documented These cruel psychological experiments weren't only taking place at Oak Ridge in Ontario. Just a few months ago, in October 2023, Quebec's Court of Appeals ruled that the United States government could not be sued in Canada for its alleged role in infamous brainwashing experiments at a Montreal psychiatric hospital. That court case stemmed from a January 2019 class action application filed against McGill University, the Royal Victoria Hospital, and the Canadian and U.S. governments, as as many as 300 Montrealers alleged that they had had their memories erased and were reduced to childlike states. The lawsuit claimed that the experiments by Donald Ewan Cameron at the Allen Memorial Institute between 1948 and 1964 were part of the CIA's MK Ultra program of covert mind control. This class action lawsuit is similar to one filed by 28 defendants against Oak Ridge Mental Hospital, where Steve was held. There was a lawsuit where nine Canadians actually sued the CIA for the MK Ultra program that people are familiar with in McGill University. Now, um, Dr. Boyd was involved in that as well and carried that to Oak Ridge. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't only McGill University. This was endemic. Yeah. It was going on in a whole bunch of institutions in United States and Canada, and Oak Ridge primary among them. So this was a well-organized government program. Although it was run by the Ontario provincial government, the federal government was certainly involved. Um, they supplied the LSD. I have all of the requests and documentation for uh, massive amounts of LSD uh, measured in milligrams. Oh my God. Like 20 milligrams. Uh, yeah. If you know LSD, it's micrograms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They would order 20 milligrams at a time. That's enough to get the whole institution stoned. Yeah. And it all came from the federal government, right from Ottawa. So Incredible. during that time, what's interesting is during that time, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, uh, Justin Trudeau's father will say 
was the prime minister. So it was, in fact, his cabinet, his government that backed this up and probably to some extent oversaw what was going on and transmitted this information, whatever they learned, to whatever agencies were involved. Mm -hmm. Maybe CIA, definitely Canadian, uh, Canadian Defense Department. The CIA involvement is pretty well known in this. Yes. Although for years that was just conspiracy theory, but right. well documented and proven now. Yeah. But it wasn't only CIA and it wasn't only MK Ultra. They were doing all sorts of things. Seriously, they even they tried everything to find out as much as they could and get ahead of the Soviets in in brainwashing how to how to make people do your bidding. Yeah. How to do wet work. Yeah how to find people that would do wet work. Yeah. You know what I mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. The best thing you could do is find psychopaths. Mm -hmm. That's why they were so interested in psychopathy. Mm -hmm. Most people don't understand what a psychopath is. They, they have the Hollywood version of, you know, the stabbing in the shower psychopath. That's not what it's like at all. It's just a character. It's not even a mental illness. It's just, um, it's maybe a defective character. Yeah, you're born that way. Born that way. Yeah, yeah. Some are born that way, but I do believe you can create it as well if you get someone young enough. Mm -hmm. It's a trick. You have to get them very young, mm -hmm. but you can. Anyway, they were they were after two things: how to find psychopaths, how to spot them, mm -hmm. how to pick them out of a crowd, and what better way, what better place to look than in a place, a hospital for criminally insane people who perform outrageous acts. So already you have a. You have a population that's probably psychopathic. Right. So they were looking for two things, how to find them and how to use them, mm -hmm. how to direct them. Mm -hmm. A person without a conscience is very useful to do things that normal people can't or won't do. Yeah. You cannot convince a soldier to follow certain orders. Yeah. Even during, we know during World War II, the I was only following orders doesn't work. Yeah. You can't do that. Yeah. So you can't just order people. You need people who like to do that, people who like to hurt people, mm -hmm. or people who are willing to do anything to promote themselves, to get a better position in a corporation by stepping on other people. They're without conscience. Yeah. A psychopath is simply a human. You wouldn't recognize them as different from any other, um, often very successful. Yeah. But they do it by being ruthless, without conscience. Yeah. They don't care how other people think or feel, and they will do anything. Yeah, and we see examples of it all the time. Yeah, uh, today with mass shootings where they pick up people. Yeah, and they 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 can't explain, you know, why somebody you know went into a school and 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 shot fifteen kids or something like that. It's just it's just sort of beyond. Uh, what we consciously accept and beyond any any sense of of empathy right these people have no feelings for for other people and they're easy to use it's not what they discovered in the end was it's not that complicated all the drugs they tried and and all of the techniques all of the uh, various brainwashing programs it really wasn't even necessary the answer was very simple you find a psychopath and you make them feel important. Mm -hmm. You make them, you give them what they want. You don't need to force them. You don't need to brainwash them into some kind of zombie doing your bidding for you. 
you make them feel like they're part of something important. Yeah. They like that. Which they absolutely did at Oak Ridge by putting the psychopaths in charge of the asylum, basically. That's right. Yeah. That's right. They acted like doctors. Yeah. They would, God. you know, they would they would scratch their chins and <laughs> contemplate the clinical records. And uh, I would recommend, you know, just acting like doctors, the most spooky thing you could imagine. Yeah. But these people are nuts. They're like, they're real bad people. Yeah. Yeah. And they're in charge of the program. They like it. Yeah. They want to do it. Yeah. How'd you figure this out, Steve? Oh, it took years. I knew, I knew from the beginning that what happened to me was shouldn't have. Yeah. And it, it kind of knocked me sideways for a few years following that. Sure. Sure. It took a while to recover, get my feet back under me and, and get on with life. Yeah. But, but I never forgot it. And I don't know, people, in a sense, I was after revenge. Yeah. I really wanted vengeance. Yeah. I wanted to get this guy. He had, this doctor had me on the ground, held down with my arms behind me and his knee in my back, injecting me with some kind of horrible drug. And I vowed to get revenge. And that, maybe revenge isn't the best motivation, but it worked for me yeah. over, you know, over the next 50 plus years yeah. to put all of this together. It was didn't happen easily or or um quickly yeah i got frog marched out of a lot of meetings and and um faced a lot of doubt mm -hmm. and skepticism and made to feel sometimes really crazy am i imagining this yeah am i just making this up no i'm not can you talk about the doctor uh, elliot barker the, the man who yeah. ran this program because uh he sounds like a character out of a concentration camp movie or something like that. Uh, oh, you know. But it's, in his appearance, he looks just like a normal person. He is a psychopath. Yeah. Absolutely convinced. My understanding of Barker, he's a total psychopath. Mm -hmm. His history is interesting. He graduated in 1965 from University of Toronto uh, psychiatry department. His first job, his first posting he got through um, through Dr. Boyd as the assistant director at Oak Ridge. Mm -hmm. Now that's that was a pretty high position for a guy fresh out of out of university. But even more interesting, he didn't go to work right away. Him and his wife um, were both given a year's sabbatical to travel around the world. Huh. And the places that they before they went to work at Oak Ridge, yeah, the places they went to were absolutely bizarre. Now, I have this in Barker's own words to me. We had an email conversation for months before I sued him. I pretended to be friendly with him and, and got close to him over a, a lot of emails, like a big stack of emails. Mm -hmm. He told me about his, his adventures before Oak Ridge, how he came to get the job. He went to China in 1964. Hmm. Six, might have been 65. When nobody went to China. Nobody went to China. It was not open. Yeah. He went to a Chinese um, re-education camp, prison camp, and studied their techniques in this camp. Wow. Who who organized that? How on earth? That, that takes more than just a um, yeah, medical thing. You can't just walk in. Yeah. And not only that, East Germany, behind the Iron Curtain, he went there as well. Wow. Oh, that's just a few of his travels where he, oh, Israel as well. He he went to, he lived on a kibbutz for a while in Israel. Yeah. Huh. He told me about how 
in this conversation, he told me things that uh, he's really stupid to uh, really careless and he has loose lips yeah. and they know it. Yeah. So the people behind Barker don't like him yeah. because they, you know, they, they're constantly running after him and, and trying to, trying to sweep up the mess that he makes. Yeah. So huh. anyway, his history was really interesting before he even started yes. at Oak Ridge. Yeah. And he had free reign to do whatever he wanted with these patients. Incredible. And he set up the same types of programs that he learned in China yeah. and, and uh, behind the Iron Curtain. Yeah, which, which, which sort of implies that this is sort of an international group of people that use these techniques and who communicate with one another. Because I can't imagine the circumstances in which a doctor in 1964 could go into China. China was completely closed to Americans. And to be allowed into a, a, a re-education camp is even more unusual. Absolutely. I, I, it just didn't happen. But, but the, the, the techniques that he used are really clearly Chinese Communist Party techniques. It, when you compare the two today, like just the, the, the kind of passive torture, mm -hmm. um, sit somebody against the wall with a concrete floor, with their back straight against the wall, um, legs straight out, out in front of you for eight hours or more. Yeah. To move, to move a muscle, you have to put up a finger and ask permission. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, clearly that's, wow. you know, that's something that was not invented in the Western world. Yeah. So these are the techniques that he used, which made it pretty clear to me that there's more to this than just um, a Canadian doctor, rogue doctor with some, right. some bizarre ideas. This is international. There's some other things, by the way, that bring this international. You know Jimmy Savile. Yes. Everybody knows Jimmy Savile. Yeah, well, the British comedian. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the British child molester. Yeah. Well, there's there's good evidence that he paid more than one visit to Oak Ridge as well. Really? Yeah. Wow. And Dr. Barker, to this day, although he has dementia, but to this day, he still runs something called the Canadian Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. My God. CCSP. Now that organization is a branch of the of the World Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. You can look up, just Google Jimmy Savile and Margaret Thatcher, mm -hmm. and look at the picture. Mm -hmm. There's a picture that it's all over the internet. It'll pop up, and you'll see Jimmy Savile and Margaret Thatcher holding up a check. Mm -hmm. I've seen it. Right now, this is the biggest child trafficking organization in the world. It's been around for a hundred years. It's absolutely untouchable. Yeah. Um, funded with with hundreds of millions of dollars and contacts all around the world. And Barker happens to have opened up a branch of that in Midland, Ontario. Crazy. He realized in his experiments with Oak Ridge, he realized he came to the understanding that if you want to create a psychopath, you have to get them young. Yeah. So he had to go right to the children. Now Knowing what I know about that organization and Barker's involvement in it, um, and how he dealt with teenagers after his his Oak Ridge, when he retired from Oak Ridge, he moved into dealing with teenagers through his own private office. And he was stupid enough to spill the beans on some of the things that he did with these teenagers. Hmm. It's bad. It's really bad. Yeah. I have good reason to believe 
that he was involved in an international child trafficking network as well. Wow. So these are bad people. Yeah. It seems to be an international network. Sure. We know this now. I mean, it's not that surprising to think that there are international networks of child molesters. We, we kind of know that's pop culture. Right. But when I started looking at this, um, I don't know, 1995, maybe, when I really started getting into this and started finding documents, um, no one would ever have believed such a thing. Yeah. It was just totally not in the public consciousness at all. But it sure is now. And it really all fits together. The more you know about this guy, the more clear that becomes. Some is provable. Some is speculation. Yes. Even though so much of this was exposed. Yeah. If I hadn't done what I did decades ago, no one would even know about Oak Ridge. It would have just disappeared from history. Yeah. I, I revealed enough of it that other people started looking and and there was a court case that went on, a class action case that went on for 20 plus years, was finally settled two years ago. Mm -hmm. 28 survivors, um, many people are dead, but 28 survivors um, have been given some amount of financial compensation, although their lives are ruined anyway, and it's not going to do much good for, it's not life changing for anyone. But the court decision did finally resolve this, that, yep. They did that, and it was all illegal. And that validation is very important. It is, but nothing criminal. You see, this is just; these are all just civil cases, and the insurance companies take care of the payoffs, and and really, the the perpetrators never really suffer any consequences at all. Yeah. Except, I ruined Barker's reputation. Thank you very much. <laughs> he hates me. Yeah. If you watch, there's a video documentary done two years ago by uh, CBC's Fifth Estate. I made that documentary happen by the documents that, that I put together. I'll, I'll get into that later. But there's an interview with Barker from some years before. They don't say who actually uh, some journalist interviewed him and got this hours of incredible tape. The guy just revealed himself as a monster. Jeez. And in, in the end, I I just love to watch him over and over at how angry, how much he hates me. He talks about his critics and how pissed off he is about, well, that's me he's talking about. <laughs> so that, that really does my heart good to see how much he hates me. Yeah. And I know that I, I did what I set out to do. Three specific psychological programs designed by Dr. Elliot Barker were used at Oak Ridge. One was the Defense Disruptive Therapy, which involved forcibly giving hallucinogenic drugs to break down the patient's defense mechanism. The second was called Motivation Attitude Participation, which compelled patients to maintain required behavior for 14 days. They were forced to sit on a bare floor with hands cuffed, only allowing them to move four times within four hours in a confined space of about three square feet. Failure meant forced sedation or solitary confinement. The third program was called the capsule program, where seven patients were stripped naked and kept together in a confined space for days at a time in a room that was continuously lit 
and featured holes in the walls through which occupants were fed only liquid foods through straws. Now, Steve, after you left Oak Ridge, you fell into a whole different set of circumstances, which were even more bizarre. Yeah. Because you've sort of fell in with this group of people. They were sort of the only people who stepped forward to offer you shelter and a life, right? Can you talk about that? Because that, to me, is even more insidious in a way. Yeah. So let me tell you how I came to, to be involved in this. It's That story is bizarre. Yeah. A guy named Peter Woodcock, who, yeah. who murdered four children. He was a really bad bastard. Yeah. He murdered four people. He was a classic um, psychopathic killer, serial killer. Yeah. So... When I went into Oak Ridge, he was fat. He, he had already been there for 10 years already, but he was fascinated by, by my hippie persona mm-hmm. and because he read about hippies, but he was locked up and couldn't experience it. So he wanted to hang around me, he followed me like a puppy dog everywhere, hmm. talking like me, walking like me, acting like me. So he told me about these people that came to visit him that he called the Brotherhood. Mm-hmm. Now, officially, they make this out to be bullshit. Yeah, Peter Woodcock's fantasy, but it's not because I visited these guys, and so he he took me with him on visits with these guys, and they were just bizarre. They were all big German men, and they seemed to worship Peter Woodcock. We would be sitting in the visiting room and talking, chatting. They would bring treats and stuff, and. If Peter Woodcock opened his mouth to speak, they would all shut up instantly and listen to him. Wow. And even at the time, I thought, why are these people coming here? Why are they visiting this psychopathic child killer? <laughs> what is it about him yeah. that, you know, the, the, there's supposedly some religious group. Yeah. But are you here to save his soul? Yeah. You're not here to save his soul. He's one of the most evil people in, in North America, period. Yeah. So. The fact that they even came to visit was odd. So when it came time that when it came time for me to leave Oak Ridge, simply because I found out that there was something called a review board, they never told me about that, mm-hmm. that I could actually write a letter to this review board and say, I shouldn't be here. Let me out. They would look at the case and make a decision. Yeah. So when I found out about that, wrote the letter, then boom, I'm out. So scheduled within days after that to actually be released from the hospital but they can't just kick me out onto the street there has to be a place to go yeah this this organization stepped forward and took me in wow they're nazis like i lived with them in this house um all i can say it's in the book you know i describe as as well as i can what what my experience was with these people, but they were full on Nazis doing like Nazi rituals and they didn't want me to see some of it. Some of it they did want me to see. Yeah. But here's, here's an interesting anecdote, little additional thing to this. Peter Woodcock's last victim, a five-year-old girl that he murdered in the Don Valley viaduct was about a five minute walk away from this house. Wow. See, I, I don't know what to say about that. Literally a five minute walk from this house that that I went to live with these people who befriended Peter Woodcock. Yeah. 
And by the way, they let Peter Woodcock out once. He was he was locked up for 40 years. They let him out one day on a day pass, and he killed again. Gee. Huh? Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. And these people were fascinated with him. Yeah. This brotherhood group. Absolutely fascinated with him. They were all German. They were all German. And they were all part of probably Operation Paperclip. Oh, without doubt. Without a doubt. Originally dubbed Operation Overcast, Operation Paperclip was a secret program where roughly 1,600 German scientists and their families were brought to the United States to work on America's behalf during the Cold War. The program was run by the newly formed Joint Intelligence Objectives Agency, JIOA, whose goal was to harness German intellectual resources to help develop America's arsenal of rockets and other biological and chemical weapons. But the program also included doctors and chemists who contributed to the creation of MKUltra. Although he officially sanctioned the operation, President Harry Truman forbade the agency from recruiting any Nazi members or active Nazi supporters. But officials within the JIOA, an Office of Strategic Services, OSS, which was the forerunner to the CIA, bypassed this directive by eliminating or whitewashing incriminating evidence of possible war crimes from the scientists' records. Probably working for the Canadian government? That's right, yeah. Or related, related to the government? It had to be. Yeah. How else could this guy... I mean, it just made no sense for this group of four professional people to be so obsessed with Peter Woodcock. Yeah. Wow. That was just one part of the bizarre stuff that happened afterward. They'd been following me, you know. They still are, as a matter of fact. I'm, I'm not paranoid about it, and I don't give a damn. Yeah. But yes, they have been tracking me f- since then, and still are to this day. I piss them all off because... I'm sure. You know, I, I do expose the stuff, and I'm I'm fearless about it. I don't care. Yeah, yeah. You describe in the book some of the rituals... Can you tell us about one? Because they're so bizarre, you know, it doesn't even like really relate to anything that we're familiar with in terms of like a religious ritual or, you know, any ritual that most people have ever been exposed to. The one time that I actually saw, see, I, I would see a lot of people coming and going from this house in the brief time that I was there. Yeah, I was only there for maybe two weeks. I couldn't stand it. I wanted to go back to Yorkville and be a hippie. Yeah. In that brief time, I saw a lot of people coming and going, but they would usually tell me to leave, mm-hmm. give me money to go watch a movie or something, or while whatever meeting was going on in the house. But one time they they did allow me to stay there, but I had to stay in the kitchen. But from the kitchen, I had a view, sort of a partial view across the house into the living room where they had this meeting going on with two, no, there was three teenagers. Mm-hmm or adolescents, young kids, mm-hmm. uh, younger than I was at the time, uh, a girl and two boys, and several men and women, all well-dressed. Mm-hmm. And they were conducting some kind of meeting in the living room. They were speaking Germany. And I could see the coffee table from, from the kitchen where I was kind of peeking around. I could see the coffee table, big, large coffee table. And there was a, a book 
I thought it was an unusual book because it was square. It was almost a cube shape, but it was a book. Yeah. That was on the table. And they were, they opened the book. The two boys picked up the girl. Maybe she was 14, like maybe younger than that. Picked her up and sat her on the coffee table facing the opposite direction from where I was. And the book was between her legs. And I'm watching this going, wow, this is so weird. And it's all in a language I don't understand and all kind of creepy. And then at the end of whatever they were doing, they all stood up and threw a Nazi salute. Sieg Heil. Jeez. Whoa. <laughs> That'll chill your blood right there. Here's the thing that happened with this, too, that, that brings in the paperclip thing. Yeah. So one day when when they weren't home, I went snooping around the house like, like any Mm-hmm. It would, that <laughs> circumstance. So I'm looking around in the basement, and I found this German, uh, this leather German officer's coat, like SS, long coat. It was really beautiful leather coat, mm-hmm. but it was stiff as a board. So I took it out of the basement and searched through the kitchen drawers and found some some dubbin, you know, that stuff for shoes. Sure. And spent, spent the whole day working this leather and got it all nice and soft again. Mm-hmm. And his, his name was Klaus. Anyway, when they came home, I showed it to him, and he gave it to me. He said, "Oh, you can have that." Yeah. And oh, I was so pleased with it. It was just so. It was too big for me, but but I was a hippie, and it was fine. Yeah, and hippies wore all kinds of crazy clothes. Yeah, all kinds of crazy stuff. So yeah, yeah. at that time, I also had a. We called it a surfer's cross. It was actually the German Iron Cross. I remember those. It was called a surfer's cross in the sixties. It was a popular thing. So I had that on, and. And that officer's coat. And one day I walked into a deli in Yorkville. Oh, God. Cup of coffee and, and a bagel or whatever. Yeah. And the guy went nuts behind the counter. Yeah. He showed me a tattoo on his arm and he just went crazy. He grabbed the iron cross and tried to pull it off my neck. Yeah. Just about cut my head off because yeah. it had a good chain <laughs> on it. So he, he went ballistic. I didn't understand anything, but he explained what it was and what it meant. Yeah. And he was just beside himself. You come in here wearing a German officer's uniform. Now I understand how serious that was to him because it was less time between his experience in a concentration camp than there was between my experience in Oak Ridge. Yeah, yeah. It was only a few years before that, a decade or two before that. 20 years to me, it goes by fast. To him... It was fresh in his memory. And here he sees this young kid wearing this stuff that reminds him of that. Yeah. And it was it was my experience when I was, I guess I was 19 then, when I first became aware of that. Mm-hmm. And that's through all of this German stuff. Yeah. And it was semi-religious, but it wasn't Christian. It wasn't God. It was... I don't think... Yeah, it was something else more bizarre. I have no idea. I'm, you know, I'm like, I, I'm not going to get into satanic stuff and all the, right. the hell with religion. I mean, it's the cause of most of our trouble. But it was just nothing positive in terms of, no, of no, human it beings. Yeah, it was dark. It was dark. It was dark, and I didn't like it. Yeah, and that's part of the reason why I just ran away from the house. I went and lived in 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 a an abandoned car with no wheels, mm-hmm. rather than live in that house. Mm-hmm. But the brotherhood just seemed to keep popping up wherever you went i don't know maybe 
holy crap. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I wound up going on this most bizarre adventure through Central and South America. Yeah. Um, actually feeling like I was being chased out of my January 1st, 1980. Yeah. I was living in Vancouver. I'd finally made it out. Um, 1979, I finished this hitchhiking trip that I started in 1969. Yeah. So a full 10 years later, I wound up back, I wound up in Vancouver. So I know that someone was still watching me. Yeah. I know people came to the place where I worked and started questioning me about Scientology. These guys were cops, but didn't identify themselves as cops. Yeah. So Scientologists, I don't like them, by the way, but they did help me out with with access to information. They knew how to how to file things and get documents. Mm -hmm. So went through all of that. Then I get questioned by somebody that obviously didn't much like Scientology. They were investigating them somehow. Mm -hmm. So I knew somebody was like watching me and it felt very uncomfortable. Then January 1st, 1980, my apartment building burns to the ground. Yeah, big part. One of the worst fires in Vancouver history. Yeah, but here's something interesting. You cannot find a single reference to that fire. Crazy. Yeah. Nothing. Not in the city archives. Yeah. Not anywhere. It's yeah. like it didn't happen. Yeah. But I sure know it happened, and I did prove it because I did find one tiny little reference in Prince George digital archives. Mm -hmm. I don't know how it survived the purge <laughs> of getting rid of everything about that building. Yeah. But there it is. Yeah. So I was in that building when it burned to the ground. And you say the buildings right next door and so on were untouched. Oh, yeah. And the they, fire department did nothing. No, they sprayed no water on the building next door. Yeah, I watched made... them. I watched them rescuing High's, uh, High's Restaurant, a big, expensive old mansion, mm -hmm. pouring water on that and letting the building burn. I saw it. Yeah. Don't care what anyone says. I, I witnessed that. They let the building burn. Yeah. So... I kind of left Vancouver in a panic. It got worse, by the way. I got invited to stay in, in this abandoned house. It wasn't abandoned, but they were going to tear it down. And this girl was the last of the tenants that was still there that hadn't moved out. Yeah. So all bizarre stuff happened. I wound up leaving Vancouver in a panic. I'd never been outside the country in my life. Yeah. I got a passport. At the time, you could get it really quick. Yeah. I got a passport and took off for Mexico. Arrived in Mexico City, completely out of my depth. Didn't had had never been in any anything other than English speaking or maybe French speaking environment. Mm -hmm. So, traveling through Central America, I don't know the things that I that I kind of stumbled through like a naive kid. Mm -hmm. If I only knew how dangerous it was, <laughs> I never would have done it. But you know, I, I was in El Salvador when when. Um, uh, Oscar Romero was assassinated. Yeah. And the bizarre stuff, I know CIA were fucking around with me yeah. at the time. I know. Yeah. There's no question. The, uh, one of them drove me to the border in a U.S. Jeep and stuff I don't really want to talk about because uh, I don't know, maybe there's no, there's no statute of limitation on some of this. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you end up in Guatemala. Yeah. Staying with a guy who is actually referenced to you by someone back yeah. at Oak Ridge, right? With a connection to well, Oak Ridge. Not, not Oak Ridge. The, the guy that referenced me, he's his name is Hugh Whitney Morrison. Hugh Whitney Morrison is quite a famous guy. He's long since dead. But he was 
very close friends and associates with a spy known as Intrepid. Shortly after he was released from Oak Ridge in 1969, Steve met a distinguished older man named Hugh Whitney Morrison, who invited Steve to expensive dinners and introduced him to other mysterious older German men in the Brotherhood, which author John Ronson, of Men Who Stare at Goats fame, believes was just a code name for CIA operatives working in Canada. It makes sense because when Steve arrived in Antigua, Guatemala in 1980, the same Hugh Morrison invited him to stay with a friend of his named Pedro, who gave Steve a first-hand look at how the Mayan genocide in that country was being conducted. Hugh Whitney Morrison, according to his official biography, was an assistant to the president of a Central and South American airline during World War II when he was recruited to assist Intrepid, Canada's spymaster Sir William Stevenson, by reporting wartime activities of German agents in Central and South America. You ever heard of Intrepid? No, I have not. He's a knight, Intrepid, famous Canadian spy. But he's actually the, the guy that was the foundation for James Bond. Mm. He's the actual inspiration for James Bond. Now, this guy owned, um, among other things, he was a spy from World War II in Central America, and he owned um, a, a private airplane company, and he would fly missions for the CIA back and forth out of Central America, probably transporting drugs and all other things. So Hugh Whitney Morrison gave me this guy's address in Guatemala. Just if you're ever there, there's an address. Yeah. In Antigua. He lived in Antigua, yeah, right? Yeah, Antigua. This, he was a beautiful um, town. Yeah, It sure is. It's a beautiful town. Yeah. So he, this guy, he's a death squad member. He would go out at night and round up and kill native Indian, uh, Mayan Indian leaders. Yeah. And take their kids. Yeah. So... I actually experienced that firsthand. It just, it almost made me puke. Yeah. Yeah. Like just jammed in a, in a flatbed truck between two of these bastards that are killing people with a steel pipe God. and taking their kids. And selling the kids. Selling the kids, no the doubt. I asked yeah. him, what do you do with the kids? He says, and he laughed and said, we sell them like bananas. Jeez. Yeah. So then I decided I have to get away from this guy. Then. Yeah. Yeah. This guy might kill me. Yeah, sure. So you're lucky you got out of there. Yeah. Yeah, I, I left there in the dead of night and wound up on a adventurous trip. They said don't go to El Salvador, but I did anyway. And I don't know, I felt maybe crazy, but I felt kind of like the guy in Apocalypse Now, just walking through the bombs going off and, <laughs> and just paying no heed to it. Yeah. I just didn't understand. I was too young and naive to know the kind of danger i was in that was a bad bad time in, in central america and aside from that i was on everybody's side yeah whoever i happened to be talking to they wanted to tell me their story their sure. side of the story as much sure. as they could sure. i was not involved in politics right but i'll tell you the word the 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 presumed bad guys the contras or the sandinistas they weren't so much the bad guys in those times it was really the military that was the bad guys yeah yeah now, let's go back to after your release from Oak Ridge, because you keep sort of running into this group, the Brotherhood, 
Now, they're not necessarily calling themselves the Brotherhood, but they're linked. Like you meet Debbie and Dave. Oh, yeah. You meet them. Yeah. And they are linked to the Brotherhood, right? I think. This is when I, because they knew before I got there. Yeah. They knew who I was before. They were that. like waiting for you. Yeah. And, and welcoming you. Yeah. Debbie, Debbie was just a, she was just a piece of fluff. Yeah. She wasn't involved in anything. But Dave, he knew. He knew and See, Sault Ste. Marie, that was my hometown. Yeah. It's, um, it's basically, basically mafia central, mm -hmm. Canadian mafia central. They run the town. It's an Italian town. Mm -hmm. Man, they knew before I even got there. This, this other guy, Joe Bombacco, the gay guy. Mm -hmm. Huh? Yeah. Oh, crap. <laughs> like this whole thing going on in Sault Ste. Marie, evil as can be. Yeah. But they knew before I even got there who I was. Yeah. How did they know that? How did you know? How did how did all of that take place? And they knew they could use you. They were child trafficking, is what they were doing. They right. They used me uh, to hang around, hang around the bus station and watch for young girls arriving by bus, and I would direct them up the road to who to talk to if they're looking for pot or a place to stay. Yeah. This was traffic. Those kids were trafficked. Yeah. They were teenagers, um, maybe legal age, some, but some weren't. Yeah. And they were definitely being trafficked by this organization in Sault Ste. Marie. Yeah. And some of them were going to, to England and Europe and, yeah. and shipped I heard off. about one. One disappeared. And I said, where did she go? Oh, she went to, she took a job in England. Yeah. So, yeah, these people were child trafficking in Sault Ste. Marie. These were young kids who were just getting off the bus from, yeah. like, the sticks, basically. Yeah, running away from, uh, some of them were Indian girls mm -hmm. you know, from native reservations that would run, run away from home, and, and they would be directed into this in Sault Ste. Marie. Mm -hmm. That town, by the way, I, I mean, it's kind of my hometown, but it's the asshole of the world. <laughs> I will not even go there. I, you know, if I were to drive, I'd, I'd take a long detour around it. Yeah. And it's also the domestic abuse capital of Canada. Wow. There's that as well. Wow. 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 So lots of bad juju around that lots place. Lots of bad juju in, Susu, in the Susu. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, but God. yeah, it uh, still surprises me. How did he know who I was? Yeah. All of this stuff before I even got there. Yeah. And you talk about this sort of network of... I don't know what you would call them, like little, you know, like hangouts, houses that were taken over by, you know, fellow hippies. Where there were paid for that. Yeah, where there was food, where there were drugs. Mm -hmm. It seemed like kind of an idyllic existence for young people. But there was there seemed to be something very sinister behind it. And as you just asked, like who paid for it? Who set this up? Yeah. Whose house was it? Right? Yeah. I didn't even think of it at the time, yeah. never thought about it at the time, right. but whose house was that and who paid for the food? Yeah. And somebody was, was watching over that whole thing. Sure. I, I never thought about it at the time. I was just a hippie. This was when, when um, Woodstock was about to happen. Right. And I explain in the book why I did not go to Woodstock. Yeah. What happened? Yeah. It resulted in the next five years in federal prison. Yeah. And again, I didn't even really do very much. No, you did nothing. Yeah, I hardly didn't. anything. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, I parlayed a, a, a small mistake that Dave got me into, basically rolling cigarette machines. Yeah. You roll them over and 
the money falls out, then you roll it back up and put the money back in and take the cigarettes out yeah. and roll it again. Yeah. That's that was the big crime that got me several months. And I also protected I, I protected him from from an LSD bust. I, I took the I took the fall yeah. because I had already been busted for that. Yeah. Then then he pleaded guilty and they charged me with perjury. And, <laughs> How do you do that? That's crazy. That's that's wacky. Yeah. So yeah, I, so I parlayed a, a, a three month sentence into nine years. Yeah. Of which I did five. Yeah. And you end up at back at Oak Ridge. Yeah, that was before, but they didn't want me. They did not want me at all. The only reason why they sent me back there from Sault Ste. Marie is because I had been there before, so they had to send me back to be reevaluated or something, but. But I was there, I think, for one month or less, 30 days or less. They didn't want me at all. It's funny because when I got out, they didn't want to let me go. Yeah. You know, they, I needs psychopath, needs treatment. Right. But the second time, they didn't even want me. Yeah. His, it says right on my clinical record, his place is in prison. Yeah. <laughs> Peter Woodcock's place wasn't in prison. Right. Matthew Charles Lamb, we should talk about him. His place wasn't in prison, but mine was. <laughs> and when you go back, you know, now you're one of the people running, running the asylum, right? Yeah. Yeah. Matthew Lamb was a spree shooter who was considered an early success of Dr. Barker's program at Oak Ridge. Steve met Lamb during his second stay in Oak Ridge in 1971. Lamb was there because after a short stint in jail for engaging in a shootout with police officers, he took a shotgun from his uncle's house and went on a shooting spree around his East Windsor neighborhood, killing two strangers and wounding two others. He was charged with capital murder and sent to Oak Ridge, where he became an ideal patient who, in Dr. Barker's words, could write remarkable mental profiles. With Barker's encouragement, Lamb later joined the Rhodesian Army during the Second Bush War and died of friendly fire in 1976. One of the things that you, you have to do is oversee this oh, horrific... The capsule. Yeah, the capsule. The capsule. Barker's notion was, it's about communication. Psychopaths are psychopaths because they can't communicate with each other. Yeah. So his his theory, his presumed theory, was to make people communicate, you have to take away all superfluous stimulation, remove everything that prevents direct confrontation between two or more people. Yeah. So he kept finding more and more compact ways of doing that to the point where he built a box, basically a, a wooden cell padded cell with no windows and when the door was closed you didn't know where that was it was just all a cube with a, a one open toilet and uh holes in the wall where you drink food liquid food through straws yeah everyone's in there naked um and in the ceiling there's a camera there's something something extra special about that camera as well yeah so filming the inmates themselves would take turns filming what was going on in there to make sure nobody killed each other, to make sure there was no 
no violence, which frequently happened because yeah. of the nature of the whole thing. Yeah. So it was sensory deprivation and and uh, drug stimulated uh, violence fest. Yeah. They put people in there deliberately for confrontation. Yeah. Anything short of actual murder was kind of accepted. Yeah. So rape and fist fights. Yeah, and- that was his idea of treatment. Yeah. I witnessed a rape to the point where I, I had to cover up. It was a, a piece of carpet that you could put over the viewing thing. Yeah. And I, I couldn't watch. I didn't care if they killed each other. I just put the car. Don't. I don't want to see that. Yeah. In the book, you talk about how they put one true psychopath in there with these other people. Oh, yeah. Who are really dangerous psychopath to just sort of get yeah. get things going in a, in, a, <laughs> in a bad direction. One of them was Victor Hoffman. Mm-hmm. You can look him up. Mm-hmm. He, he killed, I think, seven people. He killed an entire family in Saskatchewan, shot everybody. Wow. And um, yeah, he was, but he was, I don't think he was a psychopath. I think he was actually uh, de- delusional schizophrenic. Okay. Because he was right out there. He was a space cadet. Yeah. But yeah, I watched him in in the capsule performing some kind of creepiest magic ritual or something with maybe there were three or four other people in the capsule, quite packed. And they're all sitting around watching this guy, although I couldn't hear what he was saying. But it was the most bizarre stuff coming out of this complete wacko. And everybody's just mesmerized by it. Jeez. I, it's just thinking back on how how they used crazy people, pitting them one against the other yeah. to elicit response and to record it all. Now, here's I mentioned the camera that was in, in there. So in 1996, I went with CBC. Finally, I convinced somebody in mainstream media that what I was telling them was for real. Mm-hmm. So they took me to um, back to Oak Ridge. The building was still there. Mm-hmm. And I met with Peter Woodcock. We went through the whole place. It was re- it, the video is on my website. It's called Bad Trip. Okay. So that's when this story first broke. When it really got some some traction that these things really did happen. They took me back and went through filming all of this stuff. It was quite well done. But CBC um, uh, director at the time pointed out that the video equipment that they had in the capsule was better than anything that CBC had at the time. In, in, this was cutting edge, top of the line, wow. uh, I don't know, two inch or four inch or something videotape. Yeah. That was really good and really expensive. So I have two questions about that. Yeah. Who funded that? Who paid for all that? Well, I found out who paid for that. And who got the videos? Yeah. Who got the videos? Because there's, who knows, hundreds of hours of rape. Yeah. Of naked men. I mean, this is porn. Yeah. This is some kind of sick porn. Yeah. Who got the video? Where's the the chain of custody for all of that video? Right. Who got it? Right. That's really important to know, and I never found out. Why did it have to be filmed in, in such a fancy way, right? If you're just, yeah, that that's bizarre. That's obviously for, for somebody to view. Yeah. Well, who, who funded it was the, the Canadian Donner Foundation, a $50,000 grant from the Canadian Donner Foundation, who is a known cutout for the CIA. Hmm. You can look that up. Yeah. Wow. So they probably got the tapes. Yeah. Now, here's where it gets even worse. 
whole story, as bad as it is, whatever happened to me and whatever happened to all these other people, it gets even worse. Because after I wrote the book, this is an important part because this brings it up to the to now, contemporary, yeah. not 50 years in the past. Yeah. After I published the book, um, I got contacted by a lot of people. A lot of crazy people are attracted to MKUltra. Everybody wants to jump on that bandwagon. Yeah. So I learned to be really cautious, but not to write off anything because people wrote me off for years as well. I know what it's like. Yeah. So I did the best I could to pay attention to everybody that contacted me through my website because they read the book. Mm -hmm. So one woman in particular contacted me and said her husband was part of the class action lawsuit, which I had dropped out of, by the way, decade before, wasn't interested. So her husband was part of that class action lawsuit, and he had just died, committed suicide, actually. It was because of the lawsuit. He couldn't survive the stress of it. Yeah. So she, he left. She told me that he left behind a box full of documents that he told her to burn it if I ever die. But she didn't. And she read my book. So she contacted me thinking I might be interested in this. Yeah. Damn right I was. Yeah. So over a, over a, it took me a while to gain her confidence completely because this is really personal stuff. Yeah. That. So she sent me these documents, mind-boggling, absolutely mind-blowing. And what it revealed is this. This guy, he was, he was one of four other men who graduated from the Oak Ridge brainwashing program. They were in it for years. Mm -hmm. He was a convicted violent serial rapist. There were four other men that were sent from Oak Ridge to a nearby institution named St. Thomas. Mm -hmm. And they had the same program parallel with women. Mm. Forensic institution. They were doing the same thing with women. They sent four men, all four of them, violent convicted rapists, to live on the ward, on this locked ward, with these women. Yeah. And set up the same brainwashing program, the same capsule, the same uh, restraints with uh, padlocks and seatbelts. Yeah. So I've been in contact with three of these men, three of the four. Yeah. Right? One of them is still in prison. He's in. He's still locked up in Dorchester Prison, and he tried to involve me in an escape attempt. <laughs> Incredible stuff. He's still in jail, and he's still a psychopath manipulating everything he can. Yeah. So I found a lot of information about what went on in St. Thomas, and it just so happened that when I got all of these documents, the producer of the Fifth Estate phoned me right out of the blue. She phoned me and asked, wanted my opinion. They were going to do another follow-up mm -hmm. on the original bad trip story. Mm -hmm. So she wanted, she wanted my opinion on the fact that the court case was won, but then the government appealed it. Mm -hmm. She wanted to know what I had to think about that and if I would do an interview. So I took that opportunity to tell her about what I had just found out about St. Thomas. In 20 years of litigation, this case went on for 20 years. Wow. No one brought up St. Thomas. Yeah. Not the defendants, yeah. not the lawyers, nobody on either side. Wow. But you'd think both sides would have a good cause to bring up. Sure. Well, the defense would say, well, this was not unusual. It was happening in other institutions. Right. No, they covered that up. 
They kept that absolutely silent and out of court until I blew the whistle with this. You can look this up, watch the fifth estate treatment or torture. Mm-hmm. It'll blow your mind, honestly. It'll show you what happened with these women. Now, these women were obviously raped and tortured by these men that were sent there. Yeah. At least one pregnancy that I know of took place, and that pregnancy was from the husband of this woman that contacted me. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So he he got one of these pre- these women pregnant. There was a Stockholm syndrome going on because this woman thought they had a relationship and wanted to be with him. And so I, I have all of these love letters written back and forth between them. This woman, while she was pregnant, she was still being tortured by this MAP program. It's called MAP. Motivation, attitude, and participation. This is the thing they learned in Chinese concentration camp. Yeah. This woman was involved in that while she was still while she was like big pregnant. Yeah. They were torturing pregnant women. Jesus. So the baby was born in the institution. They forcefully got rid of the, the, fa- the biological father. They had him exported to the United States illegally. I have the absolute evidence of that. I have a tape recording of the meeting between a magistrate, two U.S. attorneys, and and the subject, the, the guy who is to be deported, Yeah, where he clearly said several times he did not want to be deported. Yeah. Now, the way the law stands, the treaty is that the, the prisoner has to agree to be repatriated. That's the only way you can that it can be legally done. Mm-hmm. Well, they broke that. They absolutely breached that treaty and deported this guy to the United States. He next, the next place that he turned up was at um, Fort McCoy. Huh. Fort McCoy is where the Cuban refugees, you know, the the mural boat lift. Yeah, yeah. All the Cubans when he uh, when Castro emptied out mental hospitals. Yeah sent them to the U.S., they sent all those people to Fort McCoy to house them. Yeah. Mental patients. Yeah. Now, this guy wound up working there. <laughs> huh? Oh, my I have, God. I have his badge. Yeah. Even. I have his badge from <laughs> Fort McCoy. So this woman sent me all this stuff that's absolutely proof of government involvement in all of this. Yeah. I mean, uh, Fort McCoy and the whole uh, Cuban thing was all CIA operated, no doubt about it. Yeah. And why on earth would this guy next surface in Fort McCoy? Bizarre. So bizarre. Absolute bizarre. The story just keeps getting wider and wider and wider. Yeah. And just recently I met the offspring, the girl that was oh born. Oh my God. Yeah. I met her. Yeah. Uh, I tracked her down. Um, I actually, I, I tracked her down more than a year ago uh-huh. and kept trying to convince her that she should come and see this stuff that I have. I have letters from her biological father. Yeah. And she knows the circumstance. Yeah. But what didn't really know the details like I know. Yeah. But eventually I convinced her to come over here to the Sunshine Coast. I have an Airbnb mm-hmm. and she can stay in the cottage. Wow. What an emotional experience that was. The girl's life is ruined. Yeah. She's really, really, she's such a nice girl. She's yeah. 45 years old now. Yeah. Yeah. She has a daughter of her own. God. But quite a few years ago, she actually went to Florida where her biological father and uh, this, his wife. Yeah. 
she went there with her child who was then, I think, uh, I don't know, five or six years old at the time. Yeah. He went there for one day and the son of a bitch molested his own, his own grandchild. Oh my God. Yeah. She took off out of there. Yeah. And when she told me this story, sitting at the kitchen table, yeah. she's listening to the tape of her father's voice. She never heard her biological father's voice. Yeah. A very emotional thing. The girl is so, look, her mother was a killer. Her mother was a crazy murderer. She killed her landlord, stabbed him 27 times. Jeez. And that's what put him, what put her into this forensic hospital. Right. Her biological father was a serial rapist. Yeah. Now she's looking at the genetics. She's really smart girl. She's looking at the genetics and she's spending her, her whole life thinking, am I bad? Yeah. Am I good? Am I a good person? Am I a monster? Right. What's going to happen to me? Right. She's so confused and it's so emotional for her. Her life is ruined. Yeah. She yeah. has a drug and alcohol problem. And yeah, it's just so sad to see the repercussions of this. Sure. And it's still going on. All that trauma. All that trauma. Yeah. Generation after generation. Yeah. Probably her own daughter. She's 19 now. Yeah. Living on her own in Vancouver. I don't know her circumstance, but my guess is it's not good. Yeah. I mean, the psychic scars that that kind of experience leaves. I mean, and generational. Yeah, generational. Generational. Yeah. That's why this is not over. This yeah. is not over. I did the best I could, but. Yeah. No, it goes on. It goes on. It goes from one generation to the other. Whoever is behind these programs, you know, they, they clearly haven't gone away. And, you know, maybe they're just better at, at covering it up than they were before, you know? They're not so good at covering it up. It, they were, you know, before the internet, yeah. it was easy to cover things up. Right. Uh, in my book, I describe all of this came to me before the internet. Yeah. You know, I did all this research before the internet existed. Right. All the papers you find published on the internet about this are things that I found in in uh, uh, library archives, going down into the into the stacks. Yeah. And looking through um, professional publications from journals that doctors wrote once you find one you can find references to a bunch of others yeah so i found all this stuff that barker wrote he actually published something in the canadian psychiatric association journal that compared what he was doing in his own words compared it to the egregious things that nazis did Jeez. if it wasn't for the dire straits of our patients this would be indeed worse than what nazi concentration camps did so he knew what he was doing, yeah. but he justified it because his patients were in such need of treatment. That would be me. In his own words, he says that. Let's talk a minute. I, you know, I'm taking a lot of your time, but let, let's okay. just talk a minute about your brother because you, you eventually reunite with your brother, Gary. Yeah. And he turns out to be involved in another, seems like, aspect of this whole thing. I think so. Yeah. It's interesting. So my brother disappeared when, when I was, I guess I was 16 and he was 17 or 18. Mm -hmm. He left home and never showed up again. He was gone. Yeah. So, and he had been abused. Yeah. Oh yeah. Most definitely. Yeah. By the same organization in Sault Ste. Marie. Mm -hmm. said, lived down below. He tried to get me too, but, but it's in the book. Yeah. I resisted. I pushed him down the stairs actually. Yeah. But you can look up this guy's name. He's well known. 
There's all kinds of stories about him. Even talk about generational. Even his son was recently uh, was recently charged with child abuse and rape. He was even this guy's son. Hmm. Generational. They're still doing it. Yeah. God. So anyway, I get sidetracked. Yeah, no, 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 no. So yeah. Get back to my brother. So he left home mm -hmm. and disappeared. No one ever heard from him for mm -hmm. a decade, I guess. Yeah. Just assumed that he had died somewhere. So then one day, after all of this had transpired and after I was out and all that was passed, and I was back in Toronto working for a living and I had an apartment and a girlfriend and everything was going back into a normal lifestyle. Lo and behold, my brother shows up. Yeah. In a in a in a big Lincoln Continental. <laughs> wow. Impressed the hell out of me. Yeah, sure. I knew that he was gay. He was always gay. Yeah. So it wasn't a surprise, him and his boyfriend. So it turns out that he went to he had gone to Hollywood and met up with a guy called Ira McGee, who was a, a fairly famous hypnotist. Mm -hmm. But that guy also worked for the CIA. He worked in the gay community, mm -hmm. hypnotizing people and doing whatever bullshit the CIA does in gay communities, trying to determine whatever, whatever it is that they like to experiment with. One of the first questions Steve had for his brother Gary when he showed up in Toronto in 1977 was how he could afford Rolexes, nice suits, and a Lincoln Continental. Gary's response was that Joe, the sporting goods store owner who molested him as a child, was part of the Brotherhood and had bought him a plane ticket to fly to San Francisco and arranged for him to meet hypnotist Ira McGee, an older man who liked young boys and made Gary his assistant. Steve started to realize that he and his brother Gary had both been ensnared into two different factions of the Brotherhood, Gary into the homosexual Hollywood side, and Steve into the illegal mind control experiment side. If Joe was a member of this system, it's likely that he referred them to the Brotherhood because they came from a broken and impoverished family and were therefore likely recruits. Gary referred to the Brotherhood as, quote, his guardian angel, and warned Steve that they were everywhere. So, Gary became a hypnotist, uh, first class, like really well known in, yeah. in San Francisco and Las Vegas and the California circuit of gay nightclubs. Yeah. So he would do these hyp hypnosis acts. Then he came back to Canada. He wanted to be returned to his roots, kind of. Um, but he he had a fake ID. He wasn't even. He was Steve Heislop. He wasn't even. Uh, he wasn't Gary Smith anymore. Yeah, I have an LP, an album that he recorded. Uh huh. Back, it's a hypnotic thing. It's a hypnotic trance induction. Oh, so wow. he actually recorded an LP, and I managed to get my hands on one just maybe a year ago. Maybe the only one left in existence. <laughs> but you know what? I'm scared to listen to it. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. I won't even play it. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't play it. Yeah, <laughs> no way. I'm in the middle of selling our house, so. I've staged it and I've stashed things all over the place and I can't lay my hands on it. Okay. But uh, so he he had you know he was a recorded, whatever he was a star to me. Yeah. Who has an album at that time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a big deal. So, so yeah, he 
um, he eventually died of AIDS. Uh-huh. As time went by and you know, yeah. slowly declined and deteriorated. Yeah. But he was certainly involved in all of this as well. Because hypnosis was always a big part of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah that was one of the things that, man, they, you know, the, these guys, I say CIA, but there's more to it than that. They were involved in everything. They even tried voodoo. But isn't it interesting that he, totally independent from what happened to me, got caught up in this same thing Yeah, for decades. Yeah. So were we targeted? Were we targeted? Sometimes they think so. Probably were. Probably were. You know, we were, um, uh, we were from a broken home, as they called it, with yeah. my brother and I and my mother. Yeah. And my mother was kind of, you know, she wasn't very much engaged in things. Yeah. Kind of selfish woman. Well, I think they target people who they feel will be vulnerable. I think, I think so. Yeah. 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 So it, you know, being that this happened to both of us, it's not just an anomaly right. for me because we weren't even associated with each other for a whole decade. Yeah. But both of us wind up coming together uh, decades later and comparing our past. Holy cow. And the brotherhood, you feel like they're still out there kind of keeping track of you and people who, yeah. They're aware of me. And, be, but, I don't think they whack people anymore. Yeah. I'm not worried about getting whacked <laughs> or, you know, besides I'm a kind of diehard. Yeah. So, yeah. But I don't think they do things that way. Yeah. I can't be compromised anymore. Yeah. And, and I'm not afraid of it. I'll expose whatever I can. Right. And, um, I've already done things that can't be taken back. Right. You know, they can't put this genie back in the bottle. Right. So it's exposed. People know what they did. Yeah. It's only a question of they're still trying to cover up St. Thomas. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing. Mm-hmm. Another thing, a little follow-up, by the way, about St. Thomas. Right after I broke the story on the Fifth Estate, within weeks, the same law firm that screwed up and delayed the Oak Ridge class action suit for more than 20 years they kept it on the shelf for yeah. 20 years. Yeah. The same law firm yeah. went out ambulance chasing and solicited the women that they could find to start another lawsuit. Mm-hmm. You telling me you guys didn't know about this before? Yeah. It's impossible. Yeah. So now suddenly they want to get control of these women. Yeah. I'll tell you why, because they're going to delay this for another 20 years. Sure. They they do it by attrition. Yeah. You know, they just People die off. These these women are all old now. They're in their 70s. Right. They buy off the law firms, too. They, yep. they compromise the law firms. Both law firms. I say uh, it's McCarthy Tetro is the government lawyer, mm-hmm. biggest law firm in Canada, endless pockets. Mm-hmm. They, they kept this lawsuit going for 20-plus years, when, in fact, it was a slam dunk. Yeah. No doubt about it. The conclusion that the judge finally came to after 20 years is the same conclusion he would have come to if the trial went on for six months. Yeah. You know, so nothing changed yeah. except 20 years of wasted time. In And during that time, I started this lawsuit, but I dropped out of it because I was sick of the bullshit. Yeah. I didn't want to be involved in that. And I wrote a book instead. No, and it's so draining. It just drains your time, your energy. And yeah, I understand why so many of these people died over the years. Yeah. The stress is unbelievable. It, yeah. you know, if I, if I was ever crazy in my life, it was during the period of time that, that I was dealing with this lawsuit. Yeah. My God, it was just so obviously uh, uh, a deflection. 
So obviously trying to make sure nobody hears about this. And now I see it happening again yeah. with this whole new thing. Let's talk about Matt Lamb for a minute. Okay. Matt Lamb. Matthew Charles Lamb. Yeah. So in 1965, I believe it was, mm -hmm. he walked up to four people at a bus stop in uh, Windsor, Ontario, and shot them all with a shotgun. No particular reason, just for something to do. Yeah. So he killed two of them and maimed the other two. Mm-hmm. So he got caught, convicted, and sentenced to hang. Mm -hmm. It was a death penalty then. Yeah. But he was the first person in Canadian history to be found not guilty by reason of insanity mm -hmm. and locked up in a mental hospital for these murders. Mm -hmm. So he became Dr. Barker's favorite patient. Um, interesting guy. He was obviously not crazy. Yeah. He was very intelligent, very articulate young man. Good-looking guy, like really a, a kind of personable character. Mm -hmm. Could never explain why he just shot these people. He never really explained that. Mm. Nobody could. Yeah. But he was Barker's favorite subject. Now, Matt Lamb got more LSD than anybody in clinical history, as far as I know. Yeah. And he became one of the leaders of, of the whole program Yeah. in Oak Ridge. Is he someone you ever you met when you were in oh yeah of course yeah. okay sure yeah i've been in same rooms in meetings with him okay. i did lsd with him yeah so yeah i knew him well could never figure out it never seemed to fit yeah this guy that i knew with the guy that did these murders anyway eventually he in 1973 when was the yom kippur war 73 yeah hmm? okay so in 1972 he was released from Oak Ridge. He was under a lieutenant governor's warrant. That's forever. Yeah. He's released from Oak Ridge into the custody of Dr. Barker, where he lived with him on a farm. In my book, I mentioned the farm that I, I'm convinced that was, that was Barker's farm in later years. Yeah. Anyway, in 72, he's living with Dr. Barker and his two young daughters and his wife on this farm doing manual labor. Huh. And then Matt Lamb said that he wants to go join the military. Yeah. So as Barker explained it to me, he said, with, with his grandmother's Israeli bonds and my encouragement, he went to Israel where he joined the IDF and fought in the Yom Kippur War. Wow. After the war, he returned to the farm disillusioned with the IDF, mm -hmm. stayed on the farm a while, and then next went to Rhodesia, as Barker said, the only place a war was going on at the time. Yeah. And uh, he joined the Rhodesian military and immediately got a rank. He was like a fairly high-ranking uh, Silas Scouts, I think, Silas Scouts. Mm -hmm. These are top-of-the-line paratroopers. Mm -hmm. Damn paratrooper he was. Yeah. Gone from... Oak Ridge to a respected war hero. Yeah. So eventually, he came back. At one point, he came back to Windsor on leave and was walking around the streets of Windsor wearing his, his uh, Rhodesian army uniform, mm -hmm. scaring the daylights out of the people that he had shot. Yeah. He walked right past the house of one of the women that he wounded. God. Scaring the daylights out. Yeah. Then went back to Rhodesia where he was killed in 76 mm -hmm. by his own people. Mm -hmm. Now, I talked 
I met somebody years ago. I won't say his name. One of my connections. He's a, he's an author. Yeah. Uh, he's from Rhodesia. Yeah. Written several books. Um, I talked to him and he was in Matt Lamb's stick. They called it his troop. Yeah. And he said to me, there was an order to kill the guy in the red boots. Now I, I found a picture of Matt Lamb wearing red boots. Mm -hmm. Everybody else, he's in his military uniform, getting prepared to climb onto an airplane. I can show you that picture. Mm -hmm. um, he's got his parachute on his back and they're all there with their heavy weapons. And one guy, I guess the commander is sorting out something of Matt Lamb's, but Matt Lamb has red boots on. And he's the only one in the whole thing with red boots. Yeah, that's pretty unusual. Ah, so this guy, he essentially told me that he was fracked. Mm. They got yeah. they got rid of Matt Lamb. Yeah. Because he was he was what he was. He served his purpose and off him, get rid of him. Yeah. You don't want him coming back to Canada. Right. That's the story of Matt Lamb. Gee. Oh, and something else, two other things. Yeah. There's a Wikipedia story written about Matt Lamb. I saw that. It's nothing. Yeah. Nothing but lies. Yeah. And if if you have a, a an IT expert who knows how to go into Wikipedia and look back at the changes mm -hmm. when when alterations were made, mm -hmm. every time I came up with something that exposed something, somebody jumped on there and made a change to the Matt Lamb story. To the point now the story itself was curated by an IDF officer. Hmm. In the beginning was his picture down in the corner of the Wikipedia in his IDF uniform. Yeah. Right? And the whole story was all written by an IDF guy. Then they changed it to claiming that Matt Lamb hitchhiked to the front line, but was rejected by the IDF. <laughs> I call it bullshit on that. <laughs> I would say so. Yeah. I mean, how did he get to Israel in the first place? Yeah, yeah. How did he get a passport? Right. If he ever showed any ideology of ideation of wanting a gun in his hand, they'd send him right back to Oak Ridge. God. They lied about this all the way down the line. Yeah. And just recently, uh, maybe three years ago, this ex-RCMP officer who was on the case way back 50, 60 years ago it was, uh -huh. decided to write a book about it. Hmm. Well, what do you know? I actually talked to a relative of one of the people who was there at the time. And he said that that his, his neighbor won't even allow that book into the house, into his house. Because huh. he said it's full of lies. Yeah. It's nothing but a pack of lies. Yeah. So they got an RCMP officer to rewrite the whole Matt Lamb story. Frankly, I don't think he wrote it. I think it was ghostwritten for him. Yeah. He's presented as the officer that was in charge of the case. Right. And he's manipulated the whole thing. Yeah. And all of the principals in this case know it as well. Yeah. Full of lies. The cover-up continues. Yeah. They don't want anybody to know that Israel was involved in this. The IDF was involved. Yeah. Uh, international. Um, you know, it's illegal for a Canadian to go to Rhodesia and, and be a mercenary. Yeah. It's illegal to do that. Yeah. But they just pass this by like it's perfectly normal. Right. And, and here's a guy who was, who was on death row basically. Yeah. For murdering people. Yeah. Yeah. Why would those people want someone like that? Bizarre. They, surely they must have known his history. Why would they want him? Of course. So many questions about Matt Lamb. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Steve, what a life you've led. It's not over. It's not over.
thank God for people like you who have the courage to step forward and uh, have witnessed these things and, and, you know, talk about them. And I have honestly not encountered a single other person that survived it to the point where they're confident in stepping forward. Yeah. I actually got this into movie production, Mm. got a producer in England and and, uh, contacted me and wanted the movie rights. So we made a deal and and, um, he actually came here and started filming in 2019. Mm -hmm. And then COVID struck. Yeah. What we were going to do was follow the lives of several people, Ah. like different lives of different people. Yeah. And done with actors and and interspaced with... um, with interviews of people that have mm-hmm. like me that, that are still here to talk about it. Mm-hmm. So I thought this is going to be the breakthrough. That's really going to make people aware what happened in a, in a way that can't be denied. Yeah. I'm still waiting. This is the truth of what goes on in the shadows, right? In the places that are hidden away. See, it's really not shadows anymore though. It's out there. Yeah. When I started this, it was shadows. God, I can't tell you how humiliating it was to to see the look on people's face when I start telling them about this and their eyes go like this. (laughs) (laughs) Right away. And, you know, when somebody labels you, especially me, if you get labeled by someone as just another nutcase, it really makes you feel like maybe you are. It did happen to me on one occasion Uh on a radio talk show. Oh, my God literally frog marched out he said who let that lunatic in here really <laughs> yeah oh my god I, I found myself standing on the sidewalk in complete dejected yeah oh i just felt like i'm never going to mention this again yeah yeah but i can't help it yeah the evidence is there the documents are right are abundantly clear right so we're way past the denial part yeah where we're at now is the accountability part yeah when i look back at how it was decades ago when I started this obsession. I can only imagine. <laughs> I can yeah. only imagine. Steve, thank you so much for, for sharing your story. I know this has been a torturous journey, but you're still still carrying on and, and I'm okay. <laughs> and living life and doing well and good for you. I've been married thirty years to the same woman and uh, ran a business for all that time and was successful. Sold that just three weeks ago. I sold the business. Uh-huh. So, you know, we, we did all right. It was later revealed in court that the psychological experiments conducted at Oak Ridge not only lacked a fundamental understanding of both ethics and human rights, they also didn't qualify as valid science. But for decades, they continued to be funded by the Canadian government and were framed as forward-thinking by governmental and journalistic agencies alike. The existence of Oak Ridge eventually faded from public memory until Steve Smith began his quest for justice and retribution in the late 90s, spearheading a legal battle against the Canadian government for the torture inflicted on him. Although he eventually settled out of court, his suit paved the way for a 2020 collective class action lawsuit against the government of Ontario in which 28 plaintiffs were awarded $10 million in financial restitution. Dr. Elliot Barker later admitted that the purpose of Oak Ridge was not to cure psychopaths, 
but to modify and repurpose them to serve value societal functions, especially as government agents, police officers, politicians, military personnel like Lamb, and media personalities. Given his family background, Steve seemed to be a prime candidate for an experimental role in Oak Ridge, one that sought to explore the possibility of converting a normal person into a psychopath. But in Smith's own words, quote, they picked the wrong person. I highly recommend his important book, The Psychopath Machine. And for more documents and testimony that back up his revelations, I refer you to his website, thepsychopathmachine.com. It's my great honor to name the intrepid and courageous Steve Smith as today's hero behind the headlines. Heroes Behind Headlines. Executive producer Ralph Fazzullo. Produced and engineered by Mike Dawson. Music provided by Extreme Music. For exclusive content, please join our Patreon group at patreon.com slash heroes behind headlines.